All right. We're going to get started here. Uh, Justin and I are going to co-lead this. Uh, some of you, I don't know. Um, these days it's hard to know how I don't know people, uh, especially at this conference, because it could be that you're not a part of TCPC at all, or it could be that you've, been, you've started coming here since August to, the, to, to this campus. And if that's the case, I don't know who you are, even though I'm a pastor for TCPC. Uh, so I'm the downtown pastor. Um, I've gotten used to sleeping in on Sundays. Uh, I've gotten used to not feeling so guilty about going to the gym on Sunday mornings and worrying about who's going to see me. They're going to think I'm a pagan. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my name is Marshall, and uh, I've been on staff here maybe two and a half years. I was here for two years at this campus as an assistant pastor, and before that, I worked on Young Life staff, and uh, we were church members here. Uh, in fact, 2002, uh, I was here, and I sat um, about right there, 10 feet from the wall, was my first time I, I was ever here at this church, because this used to be the sanctuary. I was a senior in college. Um, so I'm married, my wife's name's Jenna, and we have two children. Uh, Eden is six and a half, um, and to, to go to our seminar, she's a verbal kind of crazy, and, um, and then Audrey is uh, four, and um, she's a, a handsy kind of crazy. She can't control her hands, Eden can't control her lips, um, they just move all the time. Um, and we've got one on the way, Jenna's 22 weeks pregnant with a, with a little boy. And um, so I'll, I'll be starting us off here in a minute, but Justin, wanted to, we, we want to get him introduced here. Hello. Uh, my name is Justin Carlson. Uh, I work with Marshall um, at our downtown site. Moved here about seven months ago uh, from Roanoke, Virginia, originally from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, married to Betsy, who a lot of you have, have met. Um, we have uh, a son named Benjamin, who's four, who's probably Audrey's uh, uh, partner in crime, or will be at some point. Um, They're going to start a gang. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the, I don't know what you'd call them, but. Hipsters for Jesus mm -hmm. downtown. <clears throat> oh. Um, and then we have a, an 11-month-old daughter named Lisey, uh, which is short for Annalise, uh, and she is, she's just precious. Um, and, uh, you know, th this, this whole thing we're doing here has really uh, been a blessing to me. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, in Roanoke where I used to, I worked at a church in Roanoke who, who I wish could be here. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm the type of person who is prone to hyperbole. Uh, maybe I am. Uh, I'm so prone to hyperbole. Um, you didn't get that. But... Uh, um, but I think this seven months at this church and what God is doing in our midst, um, this being a part of it, just kind of this uprooting, uh, this has been maybe the most formative uh, season of my life. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't use that language lightly. And, and so for, for us to stand up here and talk about this, uh, it, it's a really tender place. Uh, but I'm excited. So you guys will hear a little bit more, more about that. And um, but, uh, yeah, very grateful to be a part of what God is doing um, at Tate's Creek and, and beyond. So. Um, so there's two different kinds of teachings. There's de deductive and inductive. Inductive is you build towards the conclusion and get to the conclusion at the end. Um, deductive is when you state uh, your purpose at the front end and you work that out. I'm going to be deductive today. 
And so here's my opening statement. The craziest person in this room is the person who doesn't think they're crazy. The craziest person in this room is the person who doesn't think that they're crazy. Um, anybody seen Office? Uh, we've got some Office watchers in here. Um, the great thing about the Office, if, if you've been able to tell, is that um, you really have two normal people. You have Jim and Pam. And then what they've done is they've exaggerated all the other characters. So you've got, um, you know, and the, and the chief one being the most exaggerated character is Michael Scott. And what makes Michael Scott so crazy is that he's perpetually happy even though he's a jerk. He's totally clueless to how messed up he really is. And that's the crazy person. We all have some Michael Scott in us where we don't see just how crazy we really are. Um, the Bible talks about this, Matthew or, um, 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about, really, he's talking about slander. He's talking about judgment. And he talks about logs and specks in our eyes. But if you read the passage, what you're going to see is that everyone has something in their eye. Either you have a log or you've got a speck. But regardless if you have a log or a speck, you don't see clearly. Everyone's vision of the world and themselves and of God is impaired. So we're all crazy. It would be appropriate if we start introducing ourselves as, my name is Marshall, I am a crazy person, but I'm recovering from being a crazy person. That would be appropriate for us. But the alternatives that we do in our living is that we either ignore our craziness, we hide it from ourselves, or we pretend we hide our craziness from others. So Jess and I, we've essentially broken down this seminar into two, two, two ways of thinking about it. We, we're going to describe our craziness, and then we're going to prescribe our craziness. Describe and prescribe. I'm going to do the description. Um, and I'm going to do the prescription using, um, using the scriptures, using really the image of God to spell out exactly for us what sanity looks like, what does balance look like, what does it look like to be reasonable, what does it look like to be a human being, and we're going to do it by using the creation account. We're going to do it by looking at our relationships with God, our relationship with each other, and then our relationship to creation. So we're going to look at what God intended for those relationships. And then we're going to see how the fall broke those relationships. And they made us crazy. Um, for the first one, relationship with God. If, I, if you had to use two words really to summarize what Adam and Eve's relationship was like with God uh, before the fall in the garden, there would be two. One would be submission, and the other one would be intimacy. Submission and intimacy, that's what the relationship with God looked like. That's what saneness and balance looked like for Adam and Eve with God. And in submission, they were submitting to God by obeying his commandments, but also his prohibitions. Okay, so his commandments. Well, what were God's, the commandments, the law did not come after sin, there was law before sin. There, was, there were commandments given before the fall. If you, if you look at it, you, you see it in, in, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They're told that they're going to have dominion. That's a command. In 2.15, uh, um, God tells Adam that he's going to work and keep the garden. So there was responsibility. There was duty. There was an assignment. They were to carry out a task. 
And as they were carrying out their task of having dominion and working and keeping the garden, they were submitting to their creator. But then there was a prohibition. God essentially told Adam and Eve, you can do whatever you want except one thing. My kids, Eden and Audrey, would love to only have one rule at our house. There are lots of rules at our house. It's a broken world. But before the fall, there was just one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as they refrained from eating from that tree, they were showing their submission to their creator. So submission. You also had intimacy. Um, Intimacy, uh, if you just see it, and even um, the the picture in in Genesis 3.8, that God was walking with them in the cool of the day. On Mondays, God walked with them in the cool of the day. On Fridays, God walked with them in the cool of the day. We're meant to, for our imaginations to be spurred on with that comment. What did that look like for Adam and Eve? I don't know exactly, but I bet you it was pretty great. So he walked with them in the cool of the day. Then we read about how they were created. Um, God made everything with the word of his mouth, and he said that it was good. And, it, and in the creation account it says, and it was so. God spoke, and it was so. There's only one thing that God didn't create with speech alone. You know what it was? It was Adam and Eve. He made Adam and Eve with his hands. There's an intimacy involved with making something with your hands versus with, your, with the word of your mouth. Why did God do that? It's because Adam and Eve were the crown jewel, the pinnacle of his creation. And then if you see, not only did he make them with, with, with his hands, he, he took Adam and he breathed breath into his nostrils. That's intimate. So if you put these two aspects together, submission and intimacy, you see what it looks like to be a human being. You see what it looks like to be sane. You see what it looks like to be balanced. And here for you um, blank filler enters, here you go. To be a human being means that we live in humble submission and radical intimacy with our creator. That's what it means to be a human being. But because of the fall, craziness entered the picture. So what does craziness look like in our relationship with God? It looks like, for you blank filler enters, to be crazy means that we live in not humble submission, but hostile rebellion and chosen estrangement from our creator. We know what happened immediately. We, we see the hostile rebellion when they disobeyed God's prohibition, but they chose that. And they chose not just to eat from the fruit, but they also chose the consequence. And the consequence was death. They chose estrangement. They'd rather that than have intimacy and submission. And we, like Adam and Eve, have been choosing the same thing ever since. We can't plead ignorance to this. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the east side of the garden, and we've existed in that exile ever since. This has everything to do with us. And the first step towards sanity is to say that hostile rebellion and chosen estrangement describes your relationship with God. Okay. So that's the description of our relationship with God. Now to our relationship with one another. Um, think about Adam. Uh, when he's, he, he's by, if you read through chapter 2, um, he's, he, he, he's naming things. 
Um, he's with God. He's listening to God. Um, he, he's, he's being decisive and giving the animals names. He's totally unaware of being alone. And then in 2.18, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. Adam didn't know he was isolated, but he was. And then God brings this new creature to Adam after Adam's been asleep. And this creature was Eve. You know what he does in verse 23? He sings a song. I'd sing a song too if I saw a woman after all I'd seen were rhinos, llamas, and cedar trees. And he does. And then he's told with this woman that they're not just going to be in fellowship, but they're going to be one flesh. In other words, the unity is going to characterize the relationship from henceforth. So unity is important in these horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, but also so is dependence. Think about Eve. Her existence depended upon Adam's rib. And, 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 and so, so Eve is dependent upon Adam, but Adam's also dependent upon Eve. Eve is called his helper. If the man was going to flourish, he was going to have to let the woman help him. So to be a human being means that we live in dependent unity with one another. Dependent unity. But dependent unity, it all changed, didn't it? This being naked and unashamed, it left in a hurry. And it was replaced with isolation and enmity. And the curse given to, to Eve, it says that uh, her desire is going to be for her husband. And what that means is it doesn't mean anything sexual. What it means is that she's going to want to rule over Adam. But then after that, it says, and the man will rule over you. So what, what, what God is telling Eve is essentially you're going to be in conflict with one another. That's part of the fall. So you're not going to have dependent unity. You're going to have enmity. And then you see Adam's blaming Eve for eating the fruit. And then you see the first scene after you get away from chapter 3 of the fall, you get to Cain and Abel. What do horizontal relationships look like? What's the fruit of the fall? Brother, murdering brother. And if you can't be united to one another, if you're going to be blaming one another, you're going to try to rule and dominate and control one another, you're not going to have unity. You're going to have isolation. So to be crazy in our relationships with one another means that we are going to live in isolated enmity toward one another. Is that what your relationships look like these days? Are you at enmity in your relationships? Are you isolated because you're afraid of intimacy? It's going to happen in our familial relationships. It's going to happen in our relationships, in our vocations. It's going to happen in our homes. Many of us will choose to be private people. That's really just a guise for isolation. We don't want to risk what it would be like to be hurt living in dependent unity. That's what it means to be crazy. But there's another relationship. There's a relationship in creation. Um, we know that because of the fall, our relationship with God has been broken. We know that because of the fall, our relationship with one another has been broken. But we rarely give our relationship with creation much press. But it's really worth thinking about. Um, think about what Adam and Eve, think about what it was like for them before the fall. Um, God created man and he said, you're going to have dominion over creation. Which means that they're going to bring about all its potentialities. Adam and Eve, they named animals. 
And, then and Adam and Eve were given the task to ensure that these animals would flourish. It was a thrilling work for them. Every night they would put their head on the pillow and they thought, what a great day at work. On Monday, after the Sabbath, they said, thank goodness it's Monday. Can you imagine? Thank goodness it's Monday. I say thank goodness it's Monday because it's my day off. But I don't say thank goodness it's Tuesday. And I love my job. But this is God's intention for us with our relationship with, one, with creation. So to be a human means that we're going to faithfully steward God's creation. Faithfully steward God's creation as Adam and Eve did. Many of you might balk at that and say, I, I do kind of, I do love my job. You might say, I'm so motivated to put my talent to work for my company and my, and my, or, or my cause. I understand that. I, I, that's how I feel about my role here at the church. I say all the time, if I were a trust fund kid, I'd do exactly what I'm doing. But for those of us, if that's, what, if that's what our relationship's like to our work, to the way that we spend the majority of our time, our tendency is not going to be to faithfully steward creation. Our, our love for our job is probably going to cross the line from stewardship to ownership, where we want to own our jobs. We're going to need our jobs. We're going to need our vocation in order to give us some sort of identity. And that's crazy. It'd be as crazy on Wednesday. I, we're, uh, my family, we're going, to, um, um, we're going to Disney World. We've never been. And um, uh, probably to deal with our depression after these five days. Um, so we're going to go, and, and, and I, we're going to have a rental car. And imagine me saying, you know, I want to keep this car. I don't really feel like it. Uh, I, I, I really like this car. This, this, this 2015 version of whatever it is, I don't care if it's a Hyundai, a Kia, or a Chevy, um, it's going to be a lot nicer than my 2003. But what if I said, this is my car? It would be crazy. And when you love your job, and your job becomes your identity, you've moved from stewardship to ownership Now, this isn't just for people with their jobs. It can happen if you spend the majority of time with your children. Be careful not to own your children, because if you do, you'll crush them. Your expectations will be so high for them. You will treat them as yours and not God's. But when your vocation is outside the home, then your job will crush you. You will sacrifice your family, your friends, your health, Anything that gets in, in the way of success in your workplace. So owning creation, it, it describes some of us, but it doesn't describe all of us. For some of us, um, we, we avoid our responsibility to cultivate creation. We avoid our responsibility to be a steward of creation. We're given dominion, and instead of having dominion, we sit on our hands. Well, we're like... Um, in, in the parable of the talents, you know, Matthew 25, there's, there's, uh, there's a master and he has three servants. The master gets out of town. The first servant, he gives five talents. The second, he gives two. The last one, he gives one. The one he gives five, he, 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 he doubles it. Now he has 10, 100% return. Master's thrilled. Um, the second one has two talents. Doubles it and he ends up with four. Master's thrilled. The last one, um, he, he, he has one. He's afraid that, um, he, he's afraid that his, his master is harsh. 
So he buries it because he doesn't want to lose it. He doesn't want to take any risks. He doesn't want to take the responsibility for investing it. So instead he buries it. And his master returns home, and this is what's been crushing me this week, is that he says, you wicked and lazy servant. I think, if you really look at the whole biblical narrative, how the Bible works, I think Jesus would have said something very different if he said, you know what, I went out, I I tried to invest it, here's what I did, but I didn't get a return. I think he would have said, great. At least you were stewarding it. But instead, that servant wasted it. So in our relationship to creation, it doesn't look like faithful stewardship. Instead, to be, instead we're crazy. And we're crazy, so we become slothful or we own God's creation. So this is our lot as crazy people. Does this help describe what your relationship's like <laughs> with God, with each other, and with creation? See, our relationships with all of these were meant to be harmonious, but instead they're imbalanced and they're messy. And my point really isn't to condemn. Rather, my hope is to give you some categories for how life was intended and then how we as crazy people have rebelled against God's intentions. And this is what life before the fall was supposed to, make, was supposed to look like, and this is how, how we've become crazy. Um, so that's my part, describing it. Um, Justin's going to prescribe it, and then I'll wrap it up here in a few. Sorry, I just I felt so far away up there. So, um, you know, Marshall, what you said at the beginning about the difference between. Um, God creating something by speaking and, and God forming it with his hands. Uh, I've never thought about that. Um, I don't know why I've never thought about that. I've never heard it. But for some reason, that really um, is something that <laughs> is pretty profound to me, just the, the intimacy, as you, as you said, um, assumed in that. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the prescription or prescriptions uh, for our craziness. And um, the thing I love about uh, Scripture, the thing I love about uh, God, God and his kindness and mercy is that he gives us uh, a language to speak. And, and maybe more specifically, uh, he gives us a, a language of sorrow. And, and this isn't a language that, that, uh, that that's uh, meant to, to just... Um, depress us or just give us permission to just wallow um, in our sin and, and just woe is me for the rest of our life. I, I think when we look at it, there's always this, um, well, with the exception of, of Psalm 88, as, as uh, Robert mentioned last night, which we'll refer to, uh, there, there's always this, um, this hope uh, that's, that's laid out before the person, and, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But, but again, a lot of this is, is just thinking about the, the language that God has given us and uh, how we can really apply that to our lives, both privately, uh, maybe in a more contemplative manner, uh, which is certainly part of this, uh, but also publicly, uh, in community, 
A lot of this can be assumed that, that we live these things out in community. I mean, you think about the Psalms, uh, whether we're reading them together or we're singing them. Uh, the, the Psalms, it was a hymn book, essentially. And, and so it's safe to assume that these things were used in the context of worship. So these people were, were, were speaking even a language of sorrow together in the context of worship. So I find great hope in that as we enter into this. Okay, the, the first thing I, I want to point out, and this may go without saying, um, but I'm going to say it, so I just wasted 10 seconds. Um, we have to talk about it. Like, we have to talk about these things, uh, both together, but also bringing it before the Lord, unashamedly. Uh, I, I'm a big novel reader uh, when I have time to read a novel, and uh, something I love about novels is, is really finding... Uh, the things in the plot and the characters that, that really um, point to uh, God's creation, whether it's the fall, whether it's redemption, uh, whether it's hope. Um, and, and a lot of times these aren't Christian novels. They're not, they're not Christian authors. Uh, but I really believe that um, art, uh, a lot of art um, can tell us a lot about who God is. Uh, whether uh, they intended or not. But there's a book called The Enchanted, not to be confused with Disney's Enchanted, um, because this book actually takes place on death row. So they're very different. Um, but uh, I just finished it the other night, but there, there, was a, there was a paragraph in it that really stood out to me for some reason as I was thinking about this. Um, and uh, it's from the point of view of, of a per, it's a first person point of view of, of someone who's sitting on death row. Um, and he's talking about another prisoner named York. It says this, York knows the truth doesn't matter in here. Inside, the lies you tell become the person you become. On the outside, sun and reality shrink people back to their actual size. In here, people grow into their shadows. And I thought that was a really good picture uh, for me personally and for us. <laughs> We're not called to grow into our shadows. Um, and I think the way we often talk about ourselves assume that's what we're doing. You know, Sammy last night talked about this shame filter, that we're, we become really good at, at filtering everything that happens, everything that's said to us, everything we do, every mistake we make through this filter of shame. And it continues to feed that, and, and it even becomes uh, kind of this diminishing returns thing. It's like we need more of it. Um, to somehow continue to affirm that we really are who we think we are, when really we're just lying to ourselves. Um, so we're too, we're, we're too prone to the lies we speak, as this uh, novel says, you know, the lies you tell become the person you become. And we can't let the lies we tell become who we are. Um, and we cannot isolate ourselves and grow into our shadows. Um, and so a lot of this, a lot of this when we talk about prescription is learning a new language, maybe for a lot of us, um, or, or <laughs> freshening up maybe on a language that we once knew. Um, I'm currently taking Hebrew, and uh, I was terrified to have to like learn grammar again. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, but uh, I think it, it's, it's a good thing for us to be reminded of, okay, what is, this, what is this language that God really wants for us to speak? 
What does it look like for us to have um, a different filter, one that's not not a shame filter? Um, Before I go any further, when are we supposed to be done? 345? Okay. And again, this is not a language we're meant just to speak to ourselves, uh, like just uh, self-talk, but I think these are things that we, we share and proclaim within the community, our community, and more specifically, the body of Christ. So how would things change if instead of hiding behind your shame, you finally admitted you were crazy? It just started there. How would things change if you stepped out of your isolation, stepped out of the shadows, to use that image, and submitted yourself to a community? Um, Zach Eswine in his book, Spurgeon Sorrows, which you all got a copy of, um, it, you could read in a sitting or two, and it, it's, it's rich. Um, he says this, We sense hopelessness, yes, and also shame. Like other issues of mental health, we don't talk about depression. If we do, we either whisper as if the subject is scandalous or rebuke it as if it's a sin. No wonder many of us don't keep, seek help, for when we do, those who try to help only add to the shame of it all. So I would say that... Uh, Talking about it will begin to give us a better language to know and understand who we are and, more importantly, who God is. We can't hide from it. We can't just compartmentalize our pain. Uh, We have to allow the restorative power of the gospel to invade every aspect of our lives, especially the crazy parts. (laughs) And I would say, to to, to be maybe grammatically incorrect, it's, it's more crazy, because that just seems more emphatic than saying crazier. Um, crazier, uh, no, man, tough crowd, sorry. Um, it's more crazy to deny the power of the gospel and its necessary place in your craziness and, and in the, uh, um, the recovery process. It's more crazy to deny your weakness, which is the very thing that Christ used to draw you to himself in the first place, it's more crazy to deny that and, and continue to perpetuate this lie that, that you can take care of it yourself. That you can handle it. You can manage it. Uh, and that's not what we're about here. That's not at all what we ever want to communicate. And so that ultimately the gospel applied intentionally and actively will be the antidote to our craziness. And so it's not just talking about it. It's talking about it in the right way. Um. I think it's really easy for us to get trapped in the familiarity of our depression, of our anxiety, of our our self-hate, whatever it would be. Uh, We've grown so used to our shame, we've we've grown so used to our depression that it's hard for us to believe that, that um, that there's a better way, that the alternative really is better. Um, and I've really seen that in my life, that I almost get this enjoyment, sick enjoyment, I'll be it, but out of self-loathing. There's, there's something about it. There's some kind of payoff. I don't think I'm doing it just carelessly. It becomes so familiar that, that and I'm so deceived that I think, I mean, it's, I, mean I can manage it. I'm living with it, I guess. Man, 
it's almost become like this mistress that I'm like, I know, I know she's bad for me, but um, she makes me feel good, and she affirms me. And so uh, this is hard work. Uh, you know, and dare I say, I think it requires a little bit of, of discipline to really put these things in place, to really actively push against our proclivities to, to self-loathing um, and to just be content uh, in the familiarity or in the yeah, familiarity of our, um, of our depression. So our appeal has to transcend our fear and sinful tendencies to find a better language, uh, the language of God, the language of Scripture, um, you know, even this language of sorrow. God gives us words to speak. He reminds us that we can come to him and scream and shout and weep, but with hope. In, in a lot of ways, it, it's, it's striving to apply who God is to our situation. So we see this sorrow, but then this appeal to say, okay, God, you are this. And I may not even feel like that right now, but, but I know my feelings of you don't change who you are. You're God. And appealing to that. And again, I, I think uh, it, it, it's, it's crazier to stay put. It just is. It's more familiar it's safer, maybe. It's really not. But uh, I think that's crazy to stay put. It's hard work fighting for what is true. Trust is not some passive endeavor. I, I really think that trust is, is, is an active endeavor, one of, of tears, of sweat, of prayer. And, and, you know, on the other side, of joy, of celebration, of feasting. You know, when we trust in the Lord, yeah, it's not just sitting back and saying, oh, Lord, you're so good. But it, it is an active thing um, of, real, of us really seeking his face. And I think this is the kind of uh, fighting trust, as I've described it here and copyrighted it. Um, man, sorry. Maybe it's just so heavy that I need to cut the jokes. Um, Sammy did say we need to laugh, so... Um, but I think we find this in the, in the Psalms. And again, more from uh, Zach S. Wine from his book. And I love this. He says, in, in this light, contrary to what some people tell us, sadness is neither a sign of laziness nor a sin, neither negative thinking nor weakness. On the contrary, when we find ourselves impatient with sadness, we reveal our preference for folly our resistance to wisdom, and our disregard for depth and proportion. Um, that's really good. And we don't want to uh, just defer to let's be happy, sad. Like, I don't know if it's okay to be sad. Uh, as he would say, that reveals our preference for folly, uh, our resistance to wisdom, and our disregard for depth and proportion. Um, God is inviting us to experience our sadness, to talk about it, to move through it, albeit sometimes it feels like we're trudging through it. Uh, but in a very strange way, in God's mysterious <laughs> providence and mercy, he's using that uh, to refine you. 
And I say that as I'm being refined, um, like I told Marshall a couple weeks ago, I said, I feel like I live in a blender. Like I've never felt this out of control in my whole life. You know, Marshall and Robert are like, of course, of course you don't because God's at work. I'm like, well, it's easy for you to say because it doesn't feel like that at all. Uh, but when I step back, I recognize that he is at work. And, and I don't want to romanticize sanctification. Uh, I want to acknowledge that it can be really hard. And, uh, but when we enter into it in the context of, of community, I think um, God really works and really moves. Okay, so I want to talk just real quickly about using the Psalms. Um, When I'm talking about the language, you know, having a language, a new language, one of the things, one of the places we can go is the Psalms. Um, I personally love the Old Testament. I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, And for me, because of where I am in my life, it's been really hard for me to, to read Scripture honestly, uh, and more specifically to kind of read it in a very systematic way, like, okay, I'm going to sit and I'm going to move through a book and study it and, you know, parse it and outline it. I never really outlined anyway, but um, that, that hasn't been working for me. It's been exhausting. In some ways, it just makes me feel worse. Uh, So I've been able to really enter into Scripture in a very different way, maybe a more conversational way, maybe a more intimate way, uh, for lack of a better word. In in the Psalms, I really have landed in the Psalms and and have spent a lot of time there. And a lot of time it's just reading it out loud. It's not, okay, what's the background here? And, you know, what does this Hebrew word mean? And um, what's the theology? Where is it pointing? There's certainly a place for that, and, and, and I have those moments. But a lot of the time, it's like, God, what are you saying about yourself? Because I'm tired, and, and I'm weary, and I don't even know what to say. And, and I'm worried that if I open my mouth, the only thing I'm going to have to say is death and self-condemnation. And so to go to these, these psalms, specifically the ones where, where the psalmists are crying out, again, it's this language of sorrow that we have to be comfortable with, that we have to be okay with. I mean, it's in Scripture. Even Psalm 88, which doesn't have a happy ending. I don't think it slipped in there by accident. Like when the, when the guy left the room, you know, the guy's like, watch this. He like slides it in there. Um, it has a place in, in God's redemptive story. There's a lot of mystery to that. But I, I find a lot of hope in that, that, that God would give us that kind of language. And, and it may not reflect reality. A lot of the time we're very uh, um, dramatic. But whether it reflects reality or not, it, it feels real to us. And I think God is patient with us in that and even gives us a language to acknowledge that and to come to him. Um, I believe on your sheets there is a little breakdown. I basically took some psalms and just split them up 
and sorry they don't have the, the verse numbers. It's not the entire psalm, and I kind of move stuff around. I don't know if that's allowed, but... Um, uh, but it's really simple. I mean, you look at one side, it's really the sorrow. It's the, it's the psalmist crying out in, you know, this, this list of things that is like, God, where are you? You know, my enemies are saying bad things about me that aren't true. You name it. But most of the time, there then is this appeal. Uh, but I will trust in your steadfast love. But I will remember you and who you are. I'll recall what you've done in the past and that you're not going to change. I mean, and I'm not going to go through every verse. To me, that's been helpful to think about those psalms in that way. And, and, you know, practically, it could be just going and reading them out loud. Because, again, I'm not going to promise you that you're going to go through this, this exercise and at the end be like, man, I'm, I'm great now. I'm healed uh, no, I, I think we continue to go back to him. You know, I, I, I'm a songwriter, and, and all my songwriting in the last four or five months has been in the Psalms. It's been such a good exercise for me. Uh, and that in itself has been really restorative. Um, but just remembering, who is God? And am I willing to, to acknowledge that and begin to apply it to my situation? Uh, and I think that's a really important uh, process or uh, what do you want to call it? Um, one more thing from Eswan's book. I probably should have just stood up here and just read his whole book. I feel like I'm quoting him. Um, He says this, uh, and I'm going to say this before Marshall's going to come back up. We've got a few more minutes. A larger story about God exists that possesses within it a language of sorrows so that the gloomy, the anguished, the dark path, and the inhabitants of deep night are given voice. Such a God story is neither cruel nor, nor trite. Such a story begins to reveal the sympathy of God. Divine sympathy is your teacher, dear caregiver, your ally and friend, dear sufferer. Let his sorrow's language help you. I mean, that's a a couple S-Y and Zingers for the day here. I mean, that's just really good that a larger story about God exists. It's easy for us to get really stuck and to see the world in one way through that filter. But God is reminding us, hey, I'm with you. And this larger story exists and I'm okay with you using this kind of language. But remember, I hear you and I'm with you. Um, I love the illustration that, that Sammy used the other night. Um, the 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 house elf Dobby and Harry Potter you know tells Harry you know I've I've always heard of your greatness but I never knew of your goodness. Um, I think this language of sorrow reminds us of God's goodness, in a very mysterious, very strange, even strange way. Um, but I hope this week we're reminded of His goodness. 
And we are so fearful of his greatness that, that we just, we run. Say, I don't, I don't know. I think he's tired of me. He's not. And he, he won't grow weary of you. Um, Marsh, if you want to come up real quick, I, I think um, that's one little small prescription, you know, using the Psalms as, as uh, maybe in a more meditative, contemplative way. But uh, there's some other things that, that we can uh, do. Um, so now you're thinking, okay, uh, if you don't, if you're not convinced you're crazy, um, talk to someone who knows you really well and, 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 and give them the green light to tell you how crazy you really are. Um, they will, if they're not afraid of you. Um, but it's easy to be afraid of scary people. That's kind of the weird thing about it. Um, so the prescription, well, as, as Justin said, like, yes, it, the use of the Psalms can be tremendously helpful. Um, I, I, the intention for us isn't, hey, um, you need a counselor. Um, we're all crazy, therefore we all need a counselor. It is true uh, that, it, that using a counselor at some time in your life is a very good thing. None of us are exempt. Um, but how do you know if you're in a season where you need to see a counselor? Um, I asked Lottie that question, <clears throat> and I, I thought her response was really great. She said, if you're stuck. So if you've become aware that you're crazy, but you don't know what to do, then seeing a counselor is a really good thing. Um, today, uh, the officers we met this morning, um, all the deacons, all the elders, all the pastors, and, um, and Lonnie Zuleta talked to us for a minute and kind of talked to us about what, it's, what has been their experience counseling our people over the last almost four years. And uh, here's what they said. They said uh, that um, when they're counseling our people compared to when they're counseling their, their clients in Orlando, it's a totally different ballgame. Not because our people are better, but because um, when they're counseling our people, there's, all, there's, there's more leadership in place. So w- w- when you're going through counseling here, you, you, there's, there's also, and this is totally up to you, but if you really want to get well, you'll, you, you'll let other people in on the process that um, our people, that they're in relationship with other people, they're in relationship with peers, and they're in relationship with a pastor or a ruling elder who's also walking this through them. So that counseling isn't this highly privatized thing. Um, you think about medicine. Medicine, if, if you're getting care, medical care, that you're, you're in a position of crisis, all the medical professionals know what's going on. You've got a pathologist going through your, your samples. You've got, um, you could have an oncologist involved. You could have a surgeon involved. I mean, you could have a to- you have nurses involved. You've got physical therapists involved. You have tons of people involved to bring you to a place of restoration. And then when it comes to, to soul care, it's like, I'm seeing a counselor, but I'm not telling anybody. That's crazy. Um, now, there is, pri- there is privatization. I get it. But if you're going through a hard time and the only person who knows about it is your counselor, Lottie and Zuleta will tell you that those people aren't getting better. They're getting dependent on a counselor. That you are meant to be in a relationship with peers. You are meant to be um, in submission to leadership. And all of those people in concert, just like in the medical field, are caring for you. You and I need to, to get out of our craziness. We need more than a counselor. We need a church, and we need God's officers, and we need God's people. Um, but if you're stuck, then seeing counselors is a really good thing. Um, I'm going to talk. Into, I, 
Are we? We're done. It's three forty-five. Um, so sorry. Uh, if, if, if you'd like to talk more from five to seven-ish, um, we're just going to kind of be eating. Feel free to grab me or Justin. We'd love to talk. Thanks so much. Love y'all.